Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special road trip edition of the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and road tripping Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder, Ed Condit. And Ed, I am, as I've now mentioned, an obnoxious amount of times on the road, but you are not. Um, You are in your office right now. I am. I am sat in my office, which is lovely, and I like it here. This is my... This is my safe space. I, I like being out and among the people when when the situation calls for it, but I'm by no means uh, disappointed to be exactly where I am. I am, however, grateful that you are out there. Um, you ate, you got to have proper Tennessee hot chicken, uh, which is a is a goal of mine. So I'm I'm envious of that. Well, let me talk about that. I am out there. I have been uh, for the past four days. Uh, we're recording this show on Thursday. I have been uh, on a reporting trip the past four days in eastern Tennessee, uh, doing uh, continuing the Pillars reporting on um, matters ecclesiastical in the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. And now I am on the road uh, here on Thursday afternoon from Knoxville, Tennessee in eastern Tennessee to uh, Nashville, Tennessee in central Tennessee. The reason for that is because uh, Nashville is the place where my flight is. Um, so I am driving there now, and as is typical of me, uh, I am uh, driving there under very tight time constraints. I left Knoxville oh, later than I should have because I got to talking to somebody and it was super interesting. But I, as a consequence of that, I left Knoxville later than I should have. And I am like going to just make my flight. And I got to make my flight because I promised Mrs. Flynn that I would make my flight. And she promised the kids that dad would be home before bedtime. So I am, you know, it's a long, it's like a two and a half hour drive. And I got to make it in like two hours and 20. So I, I got my got my foot on the gas here. I, I am glad that you're making every effort to make your flight. I'm glad that the, you know, you've preserved the sort of grand tradition that we have of whenever we podcast, you're in danger of missing a flight. So I think that's that's noble of you. It's uh, it's it's great commitment to the shtick. I, I appreciate that. Um, I am appreciative, by the way, of Mrs. Flynn allowing you out for four days. Uh, that's very generous of her. And we Mrs. Flynn is very her, generous. Thank She's her. been rainy in Colorado. So the kids have been, as I am, I'm, I'm given to understand that the kids have been, you know, not able to play outside. And when you're parenting by yourself and the kids are not able to play outside, it's like all the more difficult. So Mrs. Flynn is generous and, uh, and you and Michelle are generous for kind of mining for because I've had the luxury of being on this, you know, four day reporting trip, uh, which has been great. I'll talk about it in a minute, but it has been great. But also I have been able to be on this, you know, long, longest reporting trip, uh, to cover. I mean, basically I've, you know, I've been, I've been doing a lot of interviews that, that are all on, on the topic of one story, whether that means it'll be one report or a couple reports we haven't, quite yet decided but able to kind of deep dive deep for four days into one story um because of uh because of the magnanimity i suppose the the commitment to the pillar of our um our subscribers with at the risk of sounding i guess too much like a commercial you know that kind of like thorough comprehensive reporting that aims to be fair and talk to all sides and like actually be in a community if you're going to report about that community that's uh, a big a big part of what we founded the pillar for and um, that we're able to do it um, you know, not even six months into our project is is really yeah is really a uh, um, through the magnanimity of our of, of our subscribers and uh, and so again without sounding like a commercial if you do subscribe to the pillar uh, thank you and if you don't subscribe to the pillar subscribing to the pillar allows us to do full thorough comprehensive Catholic coverage of the issues that uh, you care about or maybe issues you should care about um, in a comprehensive and cool way, which included for me this week getting a plate of Nashville hot chicken, which is like this, I guess, a regional specialty that I had in Nashville, which is like this super spicy, very, very crunchy uh, fried chicken that was really good. I, I envy you that. I 
I like spicy food. I like fried food. I like meat. This is, this seems like a pretty great center of that Venn diagram. So I'm I'm jealous of that. Uh, I'm I'm also I mean a little in, in a way I am jealous that you you've got to spend four days uh, doing you know real reporting uh, diving into a story you know we we've written a bit about the diocese of Knoxville uh, in recent weeks and it's I, I think it's really wonderful like you said this is kind of a proof of concept for us that you know reporting begets reporting and to have the you know you've called it at different points the luxury of being able to go and spend four days doing that i mean it is it is a luxury uh in journalism nowadays but i mean you really this was i i think journalism at its best this isn't a luxury it's a necessity that this is this is how you follow a story all the way to the end this is how you make sure that you talk to everyone that you can possibly talk to and i and i think it's really wonderful it's something you know like you said it's something that we had in our in our minds to to do when we set up the pillar five months ago now, I guess. And it makes me really, really happy that we're able to to do that. Um, and again, as you said, I, I would repeat, thank you to all the people who subscribe to The Pillar because this is, you know, we can't do it without that support. So thank you. Um, and yeah, I'm really, I am, I'm greedily anticipating uh, the stuff that you're going to write on the back of this. I think it's going to be fascinating. Well, let me tell you, I think it is going to be fascinating. And again, I... <laughs> The more we talk about this, the more I'm starting to feel like we're like in NPR, uh, you know, like, you know how if you listen to NPR, there's like probably one week of the year, or two weeks each year when you don't listen to NPR because it's pledge week. And pledge week just means people come on and like talk for like 25 minutes about why you should be giving money to NPR. And I listen to NPR. I'm sure that makes people some people think that I'm like, you know, some sort of uh, communist or something. But I listen to NPR and uh, the two weeks of the year that I don't listen to NPR are pledge week. So at the risk of sounding like pledge week. Yeah, all of that. But let I do want to tell you before we talk about the news Ed, I do want to tell you about this one story that I, I'm going to write it, but, uh, but as a standalone report, but I, but I want to talk to you about it now because it was really cool. Um, you probably remember in fact that last week on the show, I was talking about just feeling discouraged in the life of the church and demoralized in the life of the church and having a hard time. You probably remember that. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, people wrote in and asked after you and, you know, many people asked me if you were okay. And I suggested <laughs> no, that people texted me too. It was very, very kind that people texted me and asked if I was okay. I am, I am okay. Uh, but you know, I mean, we, Kate and I are kind of going through a thing that has been really hard for us and hard for our family um, in, 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 in our own local church. And that's been hard for us. So, uh, so I've been just feeling down. Well, um, you know, and that's, it's not resolved. It continues and, and it's still kind of a, a, a difficult situation for us. But, um, when I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, I went out um, to a town uh, called Crab Orchard, Tennessee. And Crab Orchard, Tennessee, has a population I want to say of about 600. It's a little town. It's a little town where one of the actually one of the largest um, uh, sandstone, I guess you would say, mine quarries. It's sort of like a vertical quarry though, because they're cutting sandstone out of a cliff. It seems to me, but one of the largest sandstone quarries in the United States is, and and Crab Orchard sandstone is apparently well regarded by sandstone artisans and builders uh so anyhow there's a big quarry there but it's a very small town and uh and the reason i went there is because i went to see a catholic thing that is really cool um there is um in the diocese of knoxville tennessee where i was um uh, an apostolate that is um uh, overseen by the religious sisters of mercy of alma uh a religious order the religious sisters of mercy of alma and it is a mobile um medical clinic and what that means is that um the clinic is a is basically a converted um bus like kind of an rv type bus not uh like a nice one like a nice bus that's that is converted uh, on the inside into 
two like, doctor's exam rooms and then a, a small like kind of lab lab area um and they're like nice i mean they're really they're really nice and uh staffed by a religious of mercy of alma who is a physician um and a retired physician who um who who spends a lot of time there and then a number as a volunteer and then a number of volunteer nurses nurse practitioners uh cpas i think a pa helps out and a number of other medical professionals who help out and the mobile medical clinic um goes to now, Eastern Tennessee, where I was reporting, is a very poor place. I mean, you know, like not not everyone who lives there is very poor, but there is a lot of, you know, American rural poverty in Eastern Tennessee. It's a kind of it's a part of Appalachia and, and all the things that, that that entails in terms of, you know, just generational poverty and these kinds of things. So it's a place with a lot of poverty and a lot of people who don't have um, insurance, uh, medical insurance, for, for whatever reason. You know, I to be honest, I, I don't entirely understand that. It seems to me that um, there's more access to insurance, but there's still a lot of uninsured uh, people in America, obviously, and um, and and a lot of the people who are uninsured are are what you might call the working poor, people who are employed but not um, but not employed with benefits, uh, and uh, and so a lot of poor people who don't have insurance. And the um, the mobile medical clinic um, goes to set to six towns in eastern Tennessee in the diocese of Knoxville, six rural communities um, on a rotating basis, and you know makes appointments and sees patients and prescribes medication, and not just as um, a, I, when I first heard about it, I kind of thought it would be like a triage center. In other words, you go there if you have like a bad flu or if you got if you broke your arm or something like that. But that's not. I mean, it, it sees patients like that. But what it actually aims to do is to become the primary care physician for um, for people. So to to be to to be a place that's accessible to people regularly, um, and you know, to help people kind of get on medication, maybe for chronic conditions that they hadn't previously been medicated for or been treating or been managing, um, to, to make a management plan for them. There's, you know, there are kind of classes to talk to nutritionists or other people who might be helpful along the way as well. Um, and, and, and it really aims to establish like it's mobile. So, I mean, it's going to these different communities, but in each of the communities, it's aiming to establish like a consistent, regular, ongoing presence, um, of, of this medical ministry and, um, and the people, the patients, I, I, I want to say that something like 3% of Eastern Tennessee is Catholic. So most of the patients are not Catholic, and most of the patients, because there's so few Catholics, have ever even met a Catholic. And so for them to meet a religious sister is really unusual. But the, the, the clinic is, is just, aim, aim, just aims to, you know, be a Catholic presence and a, a, a Catholic presence of the works of mercy in these communities, which are these small rural communities. It was really neat to go out there and to talk with the people and to see, to see the work they were doing. That sounds really cool. I please tell me you took pictures. I did take pictures. Yeah, I was really. Uh, I, I did okay. take pictures. Sorry, I'm immediately thinking of this as you know. I'm listening to you as a, as an enthusiastic Catholic, but I'm thinking immediately as an editor and just go tell me you got art. Yeah, I have art and good interviews. I did a bunch of good interviews, and 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 it was a pretty interesting place, and and it'll be a good story. Now, I don't know if you have this experience, but like I, I'm always like a little bit nervous when I'm at a, a place that's medical and I'm, and I'm doing some reporting or taking a picture because I never, you know, you want to respect people's privacy. And, um, and, and one of the things about the clinic, in fact, is that it really, really aims, it, it really aims to make sure that people who maybe medically were being treated by the public health department before or um, had had bad experiences, you know, with sort of especially free medical care, um, that, their, that their dignity is central to the whole thing. And so it really aims to treat, to treat patients in a, you know, first class way, so to speak, to give them time with a physician and to help them develop, a, you know, to give people the opportunity to develop a real relationship of trust with the physician and to take seriously the concerns that they express. And the sister who's the medical director was talking to me too about 
the way that she aims to talk with people about pain, you know, because um, uh, this is a, a part of the country that, like many parts of the country, you know, is um, is afflicted by the, the opioid epidemic. And um, the medical clinic, for a host of reasons, doesn't prescribe narcotics. But also, you know, the sister was saying many people with chronic pain in, in any circumstance, you know, have, have never really had a conversation with a physician who says, we're, we're not going to be able to make this pain wholly go away. You have the cross of this pain. And here's something to do with it. Here's the kind of redemptive, the potential for redemptive character of, of suffering and the meaning of suffering uh, in a spiritual way. And she says that's a big part of her practice is, is, is talking with people in a way that invites them uh, to experience in their physical condition uh, some spiritual good. And that, I mean, to be honest, that that's just a cool and and thoroughly Catholic and beautiful approach to medical care that, I mean, no doctor, I, I, my doctors are Catholic, but I don't think any doctor has ever talked to me in that way about, you know, I can't, I'm not going to be able to mitigate entirely this pain. I can help you with it, but let's talk about the redemptive suffering of pain and, and, and how can I talk to you about that? That's awesome. I thought. That's, that's fantastic. Um, that is, I mean, yeah, that sounds like, it sounds like the heart of every good Catholic ministry, which it should be holistic. It should be care for the whole human person with all of their dignity, whether it's physical, spiritual, personal, um, that, that sounds wonderful. I, I, wow. I'm really looking forward to, to reading about that. My doctor, um, I say my doctor, quote unquote, I, <laughs> I I've seen him once. So I, I suppose he's my doctor in that, in that sense. Um, yeah, he and I have a rather more fractious relationship for some reason. Uh, I don't know if he's Catholic or not, but uh, no, that sounds wonderful. That sounds truly beautiful. I'm glad uh, that that's that's great. Did you did you? I have to ask. Did you watch any baseball while you were in Knoxville? I didn't watch any baseball while I was in Knoxville. Uh, is there a baseball in Knoxville? Oh, University JD. of Tennessee. I mean, is the University of Tennessee good at baseball? JD Knoxville is the home of the Tennessee Smokies, which is a minor league affiliate of the Cubs. I was counting on you to know this and to have gone and maybe got me a hat. You know, I, I thought you cared. Four days in the field and you couldn't. I mean, yeah, fine. Shoot, man! If you had told me, I would have picked up a hat. I mean, I, if you had told me, I would have tried to meet some. What are they called? The Skokies. The Smokies. The Smokies. If you told me, I would have tried to meet some Smokies for you. If I have to tell you, JD, you don't really love me. <laughs> Uh, but I do, and I do so much that I want to talk about something that's going to make you uncomfortable, but we have to do it anyway, um, because um, if you listen to the show, but you don't subscribe to our newsletters, you really should, um, but if you don't, or you missed Friday, or you missed last week's, then you might have missed some big news from Ed, and when you talked about having a doctor, it reminded me of it, because you and Mrs. Condon have a new doctor, a relatively new doctor, because you have a, 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 a particular condition, as it were. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, it is, like it is. Talk with the people I'm, about that? I, not at length. Um, <laughs> it is, it is true, uh, that the, the missus and I are expecting, uh, our first child after having been married for, uh, coming on 13 years. And, uh, we're very happy about that. God is very generous and truly a God of surprises, um, and I did mention that in my newsletter last week because, you know, we're, uh, we're some way along now. And um, it was getting awkward having to continually tell people individually. And I thought we, there should be some kind of public acknowledgement. Um, you were you have been people who listen to the podcast regularly may have noticed 
that JD has, uh, over a period of months, constantly tried to tempt me into saying something that I think is good news or I find encouraging in my life at the beginning of episodes over the course of several months, uh, to which I have always expressed my displeasure and discomfort. And that is, uh, listening back, you will now understand with this hermeneutical key that was JD attempting to uh, trying to get it out of you, buddy. Tempt me into making public personal disclosures, which I have um, <laughs> a, a natural reluctance towards. Uh, but anyway, yes, it, that we are expecting a a child um, to be born at a, at an undisclosed date. Um, the child will be of one gender or another, also undisclosed, and we are very happy about that. Well, I I'm happy for you. I mean, I'm happy for a lot of reasons. I'm happy for you. I'm I'm happy. The goodness of God is manifest and witness in real ways, and I'm so so happy about that. You know, um, Mrs. Flynn and I, uh, our, our older kids are adopted, and Mrs. Flynn and I also went many years in marriage without um, uh, ha- having, a, having a child or conceiving a child. Our, our little baby is, a, is conceived. And, um, and that cross, you know, which you haven't spoken about very much because you don't like to talk about yourself, but that cross in marriage of, of, of infertility and hoping for a baby and no baby comes, that, that can be a really a, a heavy cross in a marriage, can't it? It can. Um, and it is also, I think, it's one of the un... It's certainly an unintended and, and often unacknowledged consequence, I think, in in really good, vibrant uh, parish life that, um, you know, where there... In parishes where there are, like ours, where there are a lot of families, a lot of young families, um, and the, the sort of axis of uh, the parish community turns around the family, turns around children and educating children and educating children in the faith and this is how people meet and socialize and whatever and you know there there are from time to time you hear people speak about and and rightly um you know the vocation of single people within and their place within the the parish community and how sometimes it can be a little hard to to you know knock on the metaphorical school gates and say well i'd like to play too even though we don't have children um, so it, so it has been a, you know, there, so there's that sort of public aspect of it, certainly privately also, you know, no one, I, I certainly suspect, uh, hardly anyone in the, in, in the church gets married with the expectation or anticipation of not having children. So there's always that, that sort of looming question of, um, you know, uh, it, there's a temptation towards, uh, a, a certain pagan attitude of, you know, I'm, are, are we being punished? Is this something that's being withheld? And of course, that's not true, never true, that, you know, everything that God does, God is the author of all human history and everything that God does um, is is for our own salvation and our own uh, and done out of his love for us. So, you know, while there's that sort of human temptation to view it that way, it's certainly it's certainly never the case. Um, and, and also, you know, even in, in this time of having discovered that we are going to have a child um, has been... Uh, a wonderful affirmation that God works in his own time and that, you know, God chooses uh, the time to distribute miracles like children um, very carefully and perhaps not without a sense of humor. Um, I mentioned in my newsletter last week that, you know, we found out that we were expecting um, in, you know, a matter of days after we launched the pillar, which, uh, you know, heightened, (laughs) heightened my enthusiasm for, uh, the pillar succeeding as a journalistic concern somewhat. Um, but, you know, to see that, you know, this is, this is definitely part of God's plan and that there is, you yeah. know, at least it's hilarious eight, though, man. Uh, it would, I, I didn't find it all that funny at the time. 
I, you know, it was it was a little shocking and, you know, obviously joyful news, but also there was a moment of, oh, what have I done? Um, yeah. But, you know, it, the, the, to see that it's not a question of what I have done, it's a question of what God has done and what God is doing. And that, that is that is great. It is, it, it's really, um, it, it's wonderful. And to see that there is, you know, as in every action of God in our lives, for, for me in, in all of this, there's, there's a it's a catechetical moment it's a teaching moment jd and that you know what i'm being called to here in addition to gratitude and love for our growing family um is also you know uh, to to see that everything i have is through divine providence and that hasn't changed in the last uh you know couple of months and it's not going to change in any of the subsequent months and that you know ideas i may have about what um you know, what may happen with sort of our little journalistic project at the pillar or any other part of my life, you know, moments of what I perceive to be stability or security are, you know, really uh, ephemeral, that they are, you know, they're, they're illusory, that all, you know, everything I have comes from God and that I am entirely reliant on God's providence at any moment, regardless of whether or not I consider myself to be secure. Uh, and so that is that that is a good thing for me to bear in mind. It has certainly helped me in my prayer life. Yeah, oh, thanks be to God. I'm very very glad for that. Um, have I sufficiently talked about myself now that we can talk about the news? Well, you have, but I want to talk about I want to talk about the baby for one more minute because I <sighs> had you talked about sort of not harboring illusions about security and things, and I I I think I've we even talked about this before, and I don't want to put you you know, so I recognize I'm putting you on the spot, but I had I guess I've been. <laughs> realizing maybe that I've been harboring an illusion too, because I, you know, I know you've got a lot of brothers and everything. I, I hope I've been hoping and praying that I might find some way to sort of sponsor this child in its baptismal dignity, if you will. And I, I <laughs> hopeful that I'm in, at least in the running for such an opportunity, you know, to be um, a, a sponsor of the child's baptismal vocation and dignity and the universal call to holiness. And uh, again, you know, I, I have, I've been trying, I've been, every night I say to myself, you know, be realistic, JD, don't, don't, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I just, uh, I, I, it's just something that comes to me and in, in, I guess you'd say in prayer from time to time. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> This is this is a shocking moment of emotional blackmail and doing it on the podcast. That is, uh, well, that... It is. no, I, uh, I'm, I, I wouldn't say it except that I except that I uh, am uh, don't. I wouldn't say it except that I'm teasing you, and I, I have no bounds with teasing you. Um, but no, no Kate and I are, in all sincerity, really. I mean, we've just been really, really happy for you guys, and um, and I know our listeners are going to be as well. I, I I am very grateful. I have I started drafting my newsletter this week a little while ago, and I, I started off by saying I I was genuinely shocked and and touched by the people who sent emails and messages and various other things uh, through in response to the email. I, I I wasn't expecting that. I was deeply grateful. I was, and uh, I will say this uh, now, um, especially grateful to all of the priests who uh, wrote in and said that they were saying mass for the intentions of my family i was deeply touched by that and i am deeply grateful there is no there's no greater gift that you could possibly receive than knowing that mass is being said for your intention so fathers uh who did that i i really appreciate it thank you very much yeah that's awesome i i guess i would say i mean in their own way not not quite in the way that i do it but in their own way they've sort of been spiritually sort of sponsoring if you will the child as well i mean again <laughs> i feel i just feel like i've been doing that in a unique 
way, and you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just something that. Uh, let's talk about Cardinal. Uh, let's talk about Cardinal Ladaria and uh, in the USCCB. Okay, so um, while you while you've been on the road, uh, the text of a letter uh, that was sent by Cardinal Ladaria to Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles um, uh, emerged. We can say uh, the letter was written on Friday last week, and it is. Basically, Ladaria's response to a letter that Gomez had sent to the prefect of the CDF uh, some days before, sort of laying out the, the the USCCB's evolving plans to discuss at their June meeting and, and possibly uh, at subsequent meetings, coming up with a, a document on Eucharistic coherence. That is, you know, um, those who who can and should. Uh, receive communion and when and why and perhaps why not and specifically uh, you know talking about the the outstanding issue which has been a source of some debate public and private between the bishops in the United States of what to do about the witness of publicly Catholic and publicly very pro-abortion politicians who present themselves for communion um, on a on a sometimes weekly basis and what to do about that and I I found this interesting. I found it interesting that the text of the letter, well, I said the text of the letter. So this, this is all part of what I found interesting. I found it interesting that this, uh, this all came out um, sort of spontaneously. You know, you, you look around and all of a sudden uh, stories appeared in two or three different uh, publications all about the text of this letter. Um, and they, they all had sort of the same quotes from the letter and they, they all had kind of the same uh, read of the same, of, the same read effect. of the letter, which was basically that Cardinal Adaria had put the brakes on the USCCB's intention to develop a document on Eucharistic coherence. And a lot of them actually started with a misunderstanding that has been pervasive in the media. We, I, I think we first reported that the USCCB was going to um, have a vote on the drafting of a document on Eucharistic coherence, like back in March or something like that. But uh, yeah, AP, late February, early March. Yeah. Yeah. But the AP reported on it um, kind of, more recently, and that generated a lot of discussion about it. We've talked about this before. Reports in recent weeks have, um, and not actually, I don't think the AP has actually said this, but a lot of reports that were sort of parroting the AP ha- have have gotten it wrong because they, ha- they have said there's been a lot of news and a lot of talk lately that the U.S. bishops were going to develop a policy on this question of Eucharistic coherence, who can, who can and should receive Holy Communion under what conditions. And, um, and, 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 and if you know about how an Episcopal conference works, you know that that's never been the case because the USCCB can, of course, only make policies, which is to say kind of binding normative processes or, 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 or rules um, uh, in the areas in which the Holy See gives it the permission to do so. So a, a bishop's conference doesn't make policies on the question of Eucharistic coherence. It can set the age of confirmation and it can set the rules for clerical dress in the country and it can set the limits of ordinary and extraordinary administration of financial matters. But it doesn't make a policy on Eucharistic coherence. The the universal law of the church is the policy and the interpretation of that policy. And it, it's the interpretation of that policy belongs to the lawmaker. So the Holy See could offer a definitive interpretation of it. And the application of that policy belongs to the diocesan bishop or even the minister of Holy Communion. But the conference isn't in, isn't in that loop. I mean, the conference isn't in that line of authority because the USCCB hasn't put it in that line of authority. What the conference was planning to do was put out a statement. And, uh, and, and, and the reason I bring all that, you know, that, that expressed some common principles or common ideas. And uh, I had written last week, you had written that statement would even be especially kind of deliberative 
that it would sort of stay in the realm of the abstract and focus mostly on the question of who should and shouldn't receive the Eucharist, which is an important question, but not on the question of who may or may not receive the Eucharist, which is where the U.S. bishops disagree much more assiduously. We had sort of been talking about the fact that we thought the statement would sort of shy away from those places of, of assiduous disagreement, um, and others have, have said that too. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but, but anyway, a lot of that early reporting about the letter from Ladaria was sort of saying Ladaria puts a kibosh on the bishop's plan for a policy, and it was like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. I don't think kibosh yeah, is quite right, and policy is definitely not right. Well, yes, but I mean to be fair, um, Ladaria's letter does mention the idea of a national policy for reception of communion, which is surprising um, because that's not what the bishops. I mean, why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, he's a very clear letter, and this is. Well, no, it's not. And I mean, this is and I think this goes to, you know, part of what I was was saying about, you know, the way that this this letter was first reported, um, you know, with the same quotes being used by different outlets, all sort of having the same take on it. And, you know, I looked around in the different uh, two or three different places where this first surfaced to see if I could find the text of the whole letter and couldn't. And we eventually got uh, I say eventually we about two hours later, we, we got a hold of a copy of the letter for ourselves. And reading it it was clear that you know there was there was a lot of context missing from context missing from the initial reporting and so ladaria did mention the idea of a, a national policy so to speak for who can receive communion but he was very clear um in saying first of all this isn't within the competence of the usccb to do but he wasn't saying as like so don't you dare he was saying you know as you know because you've written to me about this and i've written to you before that this is part of an ongoing correspondence um, and he was saying, if you could just make this clear to manage expectations about some of your brother bishops, because the idea of a national policy was floated to the CDF from time to time during, by individual bishops during their ad limited visits last year. So, you know, the idea that the USCCB ever had the intention or plan to produce a national policy on this is, as you say, first of all, impossible because it's not within the scope of the USCCB to do it. And the USCCB is not staffed by people who don't know they what they're doing. The Holy See, but I don't have any indication they ever asked for permission for the Holy See. No, on the contrary. Um, and so, you know, it's, it wasn't a slap down to a, to a plan that, you know, Archbishop Gomez and the USCCB were, were mulling. Uh, on the contrary, the Archbishop Gomez had prior to this letter written to Cardinal Ladaria saying, look, here's what we're up to. Here's what we're doing. We'd like your advice and some stuff. And Cardinal Ladaria wrote back and basically said, yeah, I see what you're doing and that's great. Here's what, you know, and he also mentioned, by the way, that the entire idea of a, of the conference treating the concept of Eucharistic coherence um, at the level of the conference was the CDF's idea that they're the ones who said to the USCCB, the conference should really look at this because, you know, it keeps coming up in your in the ad limited visits of individual bishops. So it sounds like you guys have got a conversation to have here. So you should have that conversation. So again, the idea that Rome was wading in with this letter to tell the bishops, you shouldn't talk about this and you can't have a national policy. And what do you think you're doing is, you know, it, it it's, it's a complete inversion of what the letter actually said, which is you're having this ongoing process, which by the way, we told you to start in the first place. And we're, you know, we're clear that you're clear that, you know, here's what you can do and how and what you can't do and why not. And so that's all great. And here are some of the the sort of things that we would encourage you to read um, as you have this discussion and formulate, you know, whatever statement you want to come up with and, and point to them to the CDF's own 2002 doctrinal note uh, on some of this stuff. And also uh, a 2004 memo from Cardinal Ratzinger to, to then Cardinal McCarrick uh, on sort of... Uh, if you like elaborating or um, 
uh, giving some guidelines on how to read the 2002 doctrinal note, particularly as it relates to pro-abortion politicians, and, and saying, you know, carry on. And, you know, you need to have a, an extensive and serene debate, and you need to strive for unanimity and universality because that's what, you know, that's what bishops do, and that's what the bishops' conference is for. Uh, and and that's all great. Um, but the idea that Cardinal Ladaro was, you know, writing to Gomez saying, you U.S. bishops need to knock this off. You can't talk about this at the level of the conferences is, is nonsense. What he actually said, and, and this is a quote, um, the bishops should affirm as a conference that those who are directly involved in lawmaking bodies have a grave and clear obligation to oppose any law that attacks human life. Now, I think it's great. I, I think the, the bishops conference should uh, should affirm that. I think they should affirm that unanimously. I hope they will. I think um, there's likely to still be some debate even over that, though, despite what Cardinal Ladaria has has said. Um, what I found interesting was uh, in you know the the sort of debate that's been going on around Cardinal Ladaria's letter, uh, particularly amongst those who want to point to this as a as a slap down to the USCCB and say, see the you know you the these so-called conservative bishops um, should stay out of politics and, and stop trying to weaponize the Eucharist and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, that's not what Cardinal Ladaria said. Uh, he was pretty political. Um, he, he quoted from the CDS 2002 doctrinal note in the letter to Archbishop Gomez, and what he said was, and again, this is a quote, Christians are called to reject as injurious to democratic life a conception of pluralism that reflects moral relativism. Democracy must be based on the true and solid foundation of non-negotiable ethical principles, which are the underpinning of life in society. Now, I mean, again, I I don't think that there's going to be any pushback or quibbling from Archbishop Gomez or um, many of the bishops who've written about this subject in recent weeks and months, like Archbishop Aquila in Denver or Archbishop Cordelioni in San Francisco or Bishop Olmsted in, in Phoenix, um, they, they seem to share Cardinal Ladaria and the CDF's outlook on non-negotiable ethical principles. Um, and, I, and I think it's interesting that people are painting this letter as a kind of slapdown to their sort of quote-unquote absolutist position on, on the church's teaching when basically Ladaria is affirming it and saying, you know, no, this stuff is non-negotiable. Um so I, I will be very interested to see how, how this letter ends up being uh, referenced and, and how it plays out when the bishops do meet in June, to, well, virtually meet in June, to, to discuss it and to discuss the idea of Eucharistic coherence. I like that balloon, and I think that that, and I think that, that is your sincere position. And the reason I think that's your sincere position is because before you read the letter, you were hopping mad with a, pers- with a different perspective on kind of what you thought the letter said. And then when you read the letter— you, you came down from that and, and you and I had had a conversation at one point when I had read the letter and you hadn't yet read the letter or we both gotten it, but I had had a chance to read it and you hadn't. And so you, you were kind of hopping mad and, and, and I've been sort of fascinated to see that your perspective on it has changed rather dramatically, which is in my mind, a pretty good indication that that's your thorough and well thought position. I would, however, like to poke a couple of holes in it if I could. Please, by all means. Um, and, 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 and <laughs> let me say this. One of the things that struck out stuck out to me in the letter was um, Cardinal Ladaria's sort of urging that the bishops first uh, be uh, to, to have a sort of unanim- unanimous position on this. Now he did say. Now the cardinal did say the bishops should um, should affirm uh, that you know the incongruence of a, of, a, of a Catholic politician uh, supporting a 
policies that promote abortion. Um, he also said something which I think we have said many times and I think is true. And sometimes I do think that, that there are bishops who, who get this wrong or are in excess about this. But he did say, look, this is not the only issue, uh, you know, in, with which a Catholic can be out of coherence. Uh, a Catholic politician can be out of coherence with doctrine in a grave and dramatic way. And I think that's absolutely true. I'm glad that he said that, you know, and, and I think it's a little bit. I think sometimes the criticism of that from, you know, people who say, well, the bishops only say this about abortion. Sometimes I think that criticism is a little bit overwrought, but 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 there, there can be a grain of truth to it too, where sometimes that is the principal issue that is discussed, and there are other issues um, for which a Catholic can very obviously be outside of the teaching of the Church in a very clear, deliberative, and definitive way, and that should be noted. However, a point of order. What's that? A point of order, if I may. Um, you're absolutely right that sometimes uh, that criticism is made against the U.S. bishops, but I would point out two things. Um, first of all. When Cardinal Ladari in the letter says it would be, and the word he used was misleading, to present the conversation about Eucharistic coherence and worthiness to receive communion uh, regarding people in, in public life and things like that as limited to abortion and euthanasia, he's entirely right. But actually what he is um, offering a sort of gloss or take on there is not the U.S. bishop's position. He's offering that on the CDF's own 2002 doctrinal note, which specifically singles out abortion and euthanasia as especially egregious. And the second point I would make is that forming consciences for faithful citizenship, which the bishops reissued just prior to the last general election in this country, and which they debated on the floor of the conference hall in Baltimore, and we were both in the room, they everyone in the room made it well, everyone apart from maybe one person, um, everyone in the room, more or less, made it very clear that calling abortion the preeminent priority did not mean exclusive or even exclusively grave. I totally agree. So that's why I said you know, I don't, to say I that, that there's this misleading run, idea that the U.S. sometimes is messaging that that does lose sight. I think sometimes there is messaging that does lose sight of that, and and it's unfortunate. But I think a lot of times it's a straw man that's sort of used to criticize those who would say that you can be eucharistically incoherent if you are promoting legal protection for abortion at the same time a Catholic politician. So, um, but the, 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 where, where I was going with that is that, um, you know, the Cardinal's sort of urging that the bishops should be unanimous, unanimous about this is interesting because I'm not sure that it will be easy for the bishops to be unanimous about that. And, and at first I, I thought that the Cardinal was sort of trying to slow the process down because he didn't want it on his desk and he wanted the bishops to be 100% in agreement about that so the CDF wouldn't have to sort of meet out a disagreement between the U.S. bishops. And I do think there's a possibility that that's true, a strong possibility that that's true. Um, but I've been thinking about another thing, and a friend pointed this out to me, and it's stuck in my mind um, as a possibility. And I'm not sort of endorsing this. I've just sort of been thinking about these things. You know, the, the, the grand... Um, if you want to say sort of the grand smackdown of 2018, the the um, the the USCC or the Holy See's intervention to prevent the U.S. bishops from voting on a plan in in November 2018, the sort of surprise the, the November 2018 surprise intervention from the Holy See, which many people were very frustrated about. If you recall, the Holy Father told the U.S. bishops not to vote on their policies and instead to go on retreat, and it was very it was it was very shocking and all of these things and and um, and, and I like the U.S. bishop's policies, and I, the more time goes on, the more I think I still like them and think they would have been very good policies. But one, one of the points the Pope was making was that the bishop should take some time, like, in prayerful discernment of these things. And prayerful discernment only brings one closer to the heart of the Church on these matters. And I think the Pope is sincere when he urges people to that kind of prayerful discernment. And in this case, you know, there are a number of bishops who disagree with uh, with what— the 2002 document says, or have expressed disagreement with the 2002 document, or expressed disagreement with the, the guiding principles, whatever their magistral weight is, but expressed 
disagreement with the guiding principles from from Cardinal Ratzinger or expressed disagreement with a, a Parasita document of, of the of the Central Latin American uh, South Central Latin American Bishops Conferences, which says that pro-choice politicians should not uh, approach ho Holy Communion. You know, there are a number of American bishops who have sort of disagreed with that thing, which is coming now from several sort of sources of teaching in the church. And uh, and so to a certain degree, you know, uh, um, Ladaria's encouragement towards serene and pious uh, reflection and, and discernment is a kind is similar to that invitation of Francis in 2018 or, or exhortation or maybe even mandate of Francis in 2018 um, to call bishops to a period of prayer, serene and pious discernment. And, and presumably that would bring them only into greater sort of concert with what the church has said about this and whether in era Parasita or the 2002 document or the law or the Ratzinger thing or, or, or whatever, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, there's a tendency to think that the Holy See doesn't, you know, that so much of the framing has been that the Holy See doesn't want the U S bishops to, um, to, to say a thing about Eucharistic, you know, about pro-choice politicians and Holy communion. And at the same time, what, what would serene and pious discernment sort of bring you to except Sort of greater consistency with the Parasita and all these, other, and a Parasita is like footnoted to heck uh, on this and all these other documents as well. I would agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And I think that's perfectly possible and I think it would be totally beneficial. And um, in fact, I, I wrote a, an analysis piece on sort of how I think the Ladaria letter could and should be read by U.S. bishops, which which you've you've been lost in the mountains for the last couple of days. So I, I have the benefit over you of knowing what I, what I wrote and you don't. Um, but what I, I think is is certainly true to say is that the church has very clear um, moral teaching on this. And even if you go just by the text of Cardinal Ladaria's letter and what he says should be affirmed at the level of the conference and unanimously so, um, I think if you tried, uh, absent a, an extensive and serene debate, um, if you tried to float just the language of Cardinal Ladaria's letter on non-negotiable ethical principles, on you know the the moral obligations of Catholics uh, in in legislatures and in executive office, if you just tried to put the text of Cardinal Ladaria's letter to a vote for the USCCB to affirm, I don't think it would pass unanimously, and I think it's a shame. And I think the people who dissented would not be sort of headbanging ultra conservatives who who want to go further and don't find it acceptable. I think there are members of the conference who would say, well, this is too far. This is this is a little too Pharisaical. Um, you know, this is this is a little too judgmental. I, you know, weaponizing or politicizing the Eucharist and these kinds of things. Exactly, and so I think if this is if if you know if this is if anything, um, the CDF and Cardinal Ladara trying to tell the USCCB to slow down um, and to avoid, as he as he does say in the letter, you know, the sort of scandal of public disagreement amongst the bishops. I don't think it's the so-called conservatives that he's worried about creating scandal. I think the people who aren't in line with Cardinal Ladara's letter are found in a different direction. Now, I, I actually, you know, in the past few months, that has been true, right? I mean, so the bishops who have been criticizing the statements of the U.S. Bishops Conference and others have not been the, uh, in, well, it's interesting. Actually, in recent months, the bishops who have been criticizing statements of the USCCB have been um, either bishops, you know, who would be classified as being, you know, pretty uh, far to the right, you know, criticizing the U.S. Bishops Conference statements on vaccines, for example, uh, the Bishop of um, uh, Tyler, Texas, Bishop Strickland, or bishops like on Inauguration Day who are often classified as being sort of to the left. That is to say, you know, Cardinal Supich kind of uh, criticizing the presidential statement of, of, of Gomez on, on Biden. So I guess there have been those things in both directions. And I mean, just to poke a hole in the balloon that, that I just inflated, maybe I'm totally wrong about that. I mean, I honestly, 
Ladaria's letter feels to me in a certain way like a Rorschach test, and many, many people are sort of interpreting it according to their preconceived notions of how they want this dialogue to go. And I, I'm saying that because I'm keenly aware that I do not want to do that. Um, I think there's a way of reading Ladaria's letter that says, you know, everybody get on page with the page with the 2002 document and even make reference to the Ratzinger, you know, make, have in your mind the Ratzinger memo and a power seat and these other things and, you know, take some time in prayer for that. I, I, I that, that seems to me to be a totally plausible read. Um, I'm holding back a little bit because I don't want to read it according to the inkblot of the, of my own position. And I feel like mostly the readings of the Ladaria letter thus far, and I, I must admit, I haven't read your analysis. Um, I feel like most, the readings of the Ladaria letter thus far have been um, a pained effort of people. And again, I'm not talking about your analysis because I haven't read it, but a pained effort of people to sort of spin it to their own preconceived notions of how the dialogue should go. And I do not want to do that. No, I understand. And I think that's totally fair. Um, I, I'm I'm in favor of And this is what, you know, this is the reason why our, um, our coverage of this, I think, has been interesting. Um, is again, as I said, that you know how this letter first appeared was it appeared in two or three places suddenly, like within five minutes of each other, um, and they all had you know the same quotes and giving the same take and everything, but none of them actually published the full text of the letter. And I'm always suspicious. You know, I, I used to work in politics. I'm suspicious when uh, one way of reading something appears all at once in several different places with the same quotes. Um, because that, to me, points to a common source, especially if you're not going to give the full text. So that was the first thing we did is before we even wrote our um, our write-up of we published the whole text online so people can read it for themselves and they can you know form their own ideas about how they think it can and should be read. And I think that's important because you know fundamentally the the first form the first uh, priority of journalism is to inform and not to not to act as a sort of um, semi-permeable membrane of information. Uh, between between events and facts and people reading and and you know I, I think it's important if you know if the, if all the discussion is about the wording of a document and how uh, an argument is laid out then the people need to be able to read the whole thing and and it, and if dear reader um, you or listener in this case uh, you you find yourself reading coverage um, of a document that's that's quoting it and presenting one way in uh, another place where it's quoting it and presenting it another way and neither one of them wants to give you the full text to decide for yourself ask yourself. Why, why might that be? Yeah, I mean, there does, I, I will say, I mean, I think it's helpful to try. I, we spend a lot of time reading ecclesiastical documents and they have their own way of doing things and their own way of speaking. And so there, there is one, uh, one of the sort of journalistic projects is to be a, is to sort of un, you provide the hermeneutic keys to unlock it or to be a sort of hermeneutical interpreter, you know, interpreter of the thing using a hermeneutic, uh, to be an interpreter of the thing using sort of a, a hermeneutic of, of, of understanding sort of Vaticanese. And, uh, and so that, that is important. I mean, I think if you read the letter and you didn't kind of have that, have a background, I'm not quite sure what you think, but then again, I do have the background and I could see, uh, I'm not, uh, as I say, I'm not hundred percent convinced of my own interpretation of the letter, which by the way, is a bit of a problem in the sense that communication, <laughs> this is the challenge of Vatican communication often communication should communicate to the listener, the thing that, it, you know, to the hearer, the thing that is intended to be heard. And, um, and the fact that this letter has now left itself open to so many glosses is is it's frustrating, right? I mean, it's frustrating, and it, it, the letter will just be the Ladaria letter will join the Ratzinger memo of two thousand four as a sort of ping pong ball in the conference. And no, you have to read it this way, and no, it's saying this, and no, this is how much authority it should have. And well, maybe your reading's right, but the letter has no authority, so we can ignore it. And you know, this will this will just be another another ball in play. 
during this conversation, which I, you know, it, it, what a lot of people would like is a sort of ultramontane approach for Rome to just come in and say, here's what you can do, you know, send Cardinal Ladari to the USCCB to sit up at the front of the room and take questions for an hour and at the end of them tell them what you can and can't do. But I'm sorry, that's not how the church works. The bottom line is the US bishops are a body. Um, they are their own thing. And, you know, tough nookies. They're going to have to argue this out for themselves. And, you know, what Ladaria has fundamentally said is, you should not just be grown-ups about this, but you should be Christians and you should be bishops about this. And that means serene and prayerful and extensive fraternal dialogue. And and I hope and think that they should do all of those things. And I I also have the the hope that this uh, this dialogue will play out in public because I think you know uh, the way you answer public um, the way you answer public scandal and public confusion is you 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 do it publicly. You know, there's uh, there we've we've talked before on the podcast, and I know I have I have said many many times that I I don't go in for faux unity or faux collegiality at the bishops conference, and that I don't think it helps anyone, and I think presenting a united front where there isn't one um, just damages the confidence of the faithful in the entire institution because everyone looks at it and says, well, this is a you know. This is not what they really think. They're all standing up and saying they agree when we know they don't because they're writing each other snarky letters behind the scenes and, you know, whatever else. And, you know, that doesn't help. And, you know, I, I am I, I do not yet have uh, children that I'm in the physical act of raising. Um, but something I have learned along the way, uh, having once been a child myself and having and knowing a lot of people who have a lot of children, particularly my own family, is that, you know, when mom and dad fight in front of the kids, they need to make up in front of the kids. And I think it's important. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say what I think will happen at the June meeting. But first, I want to make one other note that I think is relevant to that. Um, you know, one thing that, that uh, Ladaria said is that uh, bishops should look, should make recourse to the sort of documents of, of other Episcopal conferences. And um, I've been thinking about that. The only the only sort of uh, other Episcopal conference that I can or other sort of a fraternity of Episcopal conferences, the Federation of Episcopal conferences that I can think of that has addressed this is indeed the Aparacita document, which is a document that the Holy Father frequently references and loves and talks about as a sort of uh, model for the church. And the Aparacita document is is sort of stronger on this question of, of if you will, um, on this question of Eucharistic coherence than anything anything that I've seen come from the. U.S. Bishops Conference, not individual. Anything that I've seen come from individual U.S. bishops. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's pretty strong. So, I mean, I, 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 I'm going to be doing a hunting around, and we'll probably put together, I think, we'll, yeah, we'll put together a, um, now we've said it, so we're going to, if we find a few, we'll put together sort of a, 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 an anthology of, a, of references from other Episcopal conferences on this. But in the meantime, at least the only one that I can think of is Parasita, which is, says rather, you know, deliberately that bishops who support, or excuse me, politicians who support, you know, uh, um, expanded legal protection for abortion and other offenses against human life should not be uh, is only communicated. And and once more, dear listener, don't take our word for it. We link to the original Aparacita document in our coverage of the Ladaria letter. But you know, there might be a bunch of documents that say otherwise. So I'm, I yeah, I think I'll make yeah, that no, we'll find those and we'll link to those too. I you yeah, know, we'll again, I'm, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. I am driving now. I'm, I'm on the downward slope, the, the 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 western side of the Great Smoky Mountains, descending from the Great Smoky Mountains, which being from Colorado, I would call the Great Smoky Hills. But you know, I'm descending the Great Smoky Mountains, and I am headed west. And as you guys know, I am hauling to get to the airport. And um, I am really grateful for something right now, which is that the traffic, the eastbound traffic, is at an absolute and total standstill. There's no movement 
on the eastbound side of this highway, and uh, and I'm going west to Nashville, and I am just flying right along. Although one always has the sense when one sees that the traffic going the other direction is absolutely at a standstill, that uh, which because but because of what looks like construction to me, that once one's own side of the highway will soon be flagged in that way too. So uh, anyway, that's what's that's the, that's the news from the Great Smokies. My yeah, expectation um, of the uh, of the June meeting is that there will be bishops uh, who will say, you know, well, Cardinal Glodario's letter says we need to do a lot more discernment, and so we obviously shouldn't rush this, so we shouldn't even be voting yet. You know, we need to have a much fuller and comprehensive study. My expectation is that there will be bishops who will cite Cardinal Ladaria's, uh letter in, 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 a, in, a, in a bid for uh, a protracted period of study and resource gathering and, you know, work before the bishops would even vote on the prospect of voting on a document. In other words, you know, say that Cardinal Adaria's letter calls for us to engage in things which will will, will include an expansive delay. Um, and then, if I, I mean, to be perfectly honest, how I would expect it to go, some bishops will say that. A few bishops um, will, will stand up and say, no, I think we need to publish something right now, or we need to vote on the thing to publish right now, even though they're not voting on a specific text right now. Some bishops, I think, will sort of jump the gun on that a little bit in, in terms of procedure. And then, um, you know, a few bishops may speak uh, in favor of proceeding and, and voting to, to, to develop a document along the lines of what Ladaria says. And then I anticipate that a lot of bishops, including bishops who have strong opinions on this, won't, uh, you know, one way or another, won't say anything. Uh, maybe it's because they'll be saving it for kind of executive session, as it were, uh, when the bishops, you know, when there's when the cameras aren't on and the bishops only debate between themselves. But maybe it's just because they don't want to get into the debate. Sometimes I think that among the U.S. bishops, there's a lot of just like there's just a lot of sort of uh, desire to get out of the meeting relatively quickly and not to prolong or protract the meeting. And there are those bishops. I was, <laughs> I was talking to a bishop the other day. I'm not going to say who it was, but I was talking to a bishop the other day who introduced to me a concept that I thought was hilarious. He called um, the bishops who frequently speak at the meeting, who pop up, you know, over and over and over again to speak at the meeting. He called them the Jack in the, the Jacks in the box, but the Jack in the box bishops. Um, you know, there are five or six bishops who you could count on, you know, who you could predict with almost near absolute certainty that no matter what the topic, they were going to stand up to say something. And, and, uh, and, you know, I think probably what will happen is that a few bishops will stand up to say we should have an extensive study. One or two bishops will stand up to say we should publish the thing right now, which might be the thing. Maybe a few bishops will stand up to, you know, to, to encourage proceeding. And then the Jack in the Box bishops will stand up to say a little something, too. And then a lot of bishops just won't say anything. And if they're waiting for executive session, I mean, I do understand that. I, I This is not sort of a good opinion to have as a journalist, but I've said it before. Uh, Sometimes I wonder how much of the USCCB meeting in the whole should be publicized because I think it prohibits the bishops from feeling that they can speak freely. Or sometimes I've thought maybe the meeting should be able to be reported upon by using um, what they call charterhouse rules, where you can sort of report on what a bishop said, but without identifying who the bishops are so the bishops can speak freely. That's an interesting point. I, I have long thought when we have been sitting in USCCB meetings that there should be um, the possibility of, you know, to allow better and more free discussion without you know, completely closing the doors on, on transparency. Um, what you rightly cite as the singular Chatham House. Chatham House, thank you, sorry. Yes. No, Chatham House is a real place. Uh, it's actually got an adjacent think tank to it now uh, in London. I've been there. They hold they hold debates and roundtables. And the Chatham House rule is that anything said in there can be repeated but not attributed to anyone. And, you you know, you can say what was said but not who said it. Yeah. Um, or also they could go to the old parliamentary uh, convention of, of sketch writing, that it used to be the law in parliament that you could not report 
um, who said what in the House of Commons or in Parliament in either house on on the day it was happening or the day after that there was a, a window of a couple of days, I think it was three, um, where you couldn't say who said what um, in Parliament. You could only report sort of general um, trends in the conversation. And the idea was they didn't want, they wanted the debate to happen sort of absent immediate public pressure and scrutiny. And so the grand tradition of parliamentary sketch writing uh, grew up in which um, columnists, and there are a few who still do this, uh, would basically write sort of quasi-metaphorical, usually satirical, often funny um, sort of interpretations of the debate uh, to sort of present without presenting explicitly what, what went on. And I, I would be totally game for a USCCB sort of you know rule where we could only write parliamentary sketches of the debate. I think that would be an interesting challenge. I mean, the, be- the best thing, I mean, truthfully, I-, I think it would be fun, too. But I mean, I mean, the best thing, to be honest, in my view, is for bishops to be willing to have full, thorough, robust theological debates in public, to do so charitably and respectfully, and to demonstrate to the church at large that um, it is possible to have full, robust, thorough theological debates in public and with your names on them. And, and-, and I do, I sincerely believe that would be the best. Um, I'd love it if everyone had confidence to own their opinions and to stand up for them and, uh, and for, for us to know what they are and for bishops to support them. However, it seems to me that the presence, the sort of the presence of uh, cameras and, um, you know, and the, and the way in which that can be, uh, I can see the way in which that has become a disincentive to bishops for better or for worse. And so, you know, I, at times I've thought, well, maybe the whole meeting should be an executive session. I don't actually like that because um, uh, I, I think, again, I think it's not preferable to knowing what happens, but if bishops aren't willing to let anything happen in public, I, I think that's unfortunate. Um, but something like the Chatham House rule, uh, for example, which allows bishops to debate in public, but maybe restricts the way in which that is, is reported, I guess would be an okay compromise. I mean, um, the point is, I think that there needs to be more vigorous and open and robust debate, you know, in, in a real way in which people genuinely say, this is what I think, and this is why I disagree with what you think, and, you know, here's here's some footnotes even, um, uh, in, in a serious way, um, I, I think that that's the history of sort of theolog- of working things out theologically in the life of the church, so it's not an unusual thing, and we can go back and we can sort of read um, accounts of who, who said what and who made what interventions at, you know, the various ecumenical councils of the church's history, and even meetings of the past. So sort of putting everything behind uh, the closed door of executive session is not, is not great. But if, if it is the thing that would allow, that, that would allow bishops, I don't even want to say allow because there's nothing which prevents them right now, but if it was the thing, the only way in which bishops would actually talk to each other, well, I guess I wish they would be talking to each other more concretely and really engaging on these matters. I've been actually glad for, I think not everyone has been, but I've been actually glad for um, a published sort of flurry of essays from bishops on, you know, on two different sides of this issue, uh, you know, being published in places. I far prefer that uh, Archbishop Quillo wrote one thing and Bishop McElroy wrote another and published them both. And then I then I think it's healthy for a bishop to like read something that he doesn't agree with and just send a sort of private admonition and, and keep half the debate in, in public, in the public eye and half of it out of the public eye. That's not really, in my view, helpful. Um, I understand that bishops are probably concerned that they would, you know, I, I have a feeling that bishops are probably concerned that they would like hear a lot of pushback if they expressed unpopular views in, in, in a public setting or that 
their theological view might be confusing or the or there might be a, a clericalist and paternalistic idea that people would be sort of scandalized and discouraged by the very notion that bishops were debating. Sometimes I think that, and that's even sort of reflected in the Ladaria letter, this idea of keeping up the appearance of unity for its own sake. It, it, it's deeply, in my view, paternalistic and clericalistic to think that um, baptized practicing members of the faith are not sophisticated enough or strong enough in their faith to understand that bishops don't always agree with each other and might have to, you know, talk it out. I mean, if you're married, you understand that spouses don't always agree with each other and sometimes have to talk it out. And sometimes that comes to tense terms. And you're right. I mean, sometimes you have to say to your kids, that doesn't mean that mommy and daddy don't love each other. It just means that we both feel strongly about this. Um, and I and, and not being willing to do that, I think you know, there's a, at times can feel a little bit uh, disrespectful. Well, I, I think you're right. It's, it's a it can be evidence of a clerical mindset that says the faithful um, the faithful aren't aren't equipped to to handle um, a, a nuanced theological discussion, which you know I think is is not true in many cases. And if it is true in other cases, I would say, and whose fault is that? Um, you know, who's charged with educating the faithful so that they can handle an adult conversation about the faith? Um, and if they aren't able to, who's who's failed in their duty there? Um, I. I, I also, I just, you know, I, our Lord was not massively keen on things being done in secret. He, mm-hmm. you know, he was, he was pretty clear. But you're, yeah, uh, well, apart from prayer and almsgiving, but I don't think that's what they're doing in executive session. I could be wrong. Uh, I'm sure they're praying a little bit, but I mean, they can do that in public. I don't think, I don't think there's any any real risk to them there. Um, but you know, let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Just, yeah. just speak your mind. You know, the idea, you know, what you said about, you know, some of them will probably worry about expressing an unpopular opinion. It's like, well, I'm sorry if you're a bishop of the church. You should be pretty confident. You should be pretty comfortable at a minimum with the idea that you're going to say some unpopular things. Otherwise, you're going to be a pretty witness to the gospel because that's a pretty unpopular thing. The was resurrected from the dead. So you should be accustomed to saying unpopular things. Yeah, really. If you if you can't announce that a virgin became pregnant and bore the son of God who died and rose on the third day, you know, because that's a little, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Just, you know, be a man. Speak your mind. We can take it. It is incumbent upon us, though, Ed. I mean, that we, you and I, um, who, who, who do sort of interpret or present the deliberations of the bishops on these matters, um, there is a responsibility in us, too. Um, if we are calling for serious, um, concrete, real, fraternal, theological debate, then it is incumbent upon those who sort of uh, recount that, um, you and I and other me- members of the media, to understand it as such and to present it as such and not to sort of sensationalize it or present every single issue as the good guys versus the bad guys um, uh, or, you know, the White House versus the black hats in, in a way that is um, that is in itself uh reductive or sort of yeah, reductive of the church's process of discernment and debate to uh, a sort of partisan political debate. I mean, it, it, and it, it is incumbent upon us to do that well and, um, and, and, and others too. Um, you know, and, I agree with you, but the thing is it can be done and it has been done. I remember when they were at, when at the 2018 meeting where, you know, as you said, there was the great Vatican kibosh on, on plans to vote on, you know, a raft of sort of normative stuff uh, in the wake of the McCarrick scandal. And Rome said, oh, no, you won't. You won't have this vote. You won't vote on these things. Rome is going to have the last word on this. And in the end, it turned out to be Vos Estes. Um, you know, the, there was considerable debate on the floor of what a, a sort of mechanism for Episcopal accountability should look like. And there were, you know, multiple ideas from multiple different directions. And, you know, there was the sort of, if you like, the USCCB's official 
quasi-official sort of proposal, which is what Rome said you can't vote on. Um, and I, I, um, I remember there were a lot of bishops who were in favor of it. There were a lot who were against it. And there were people who were against it in, fa- in favor of another idea, the so-called metropolitan model, which was argued to have um, you know, sort of a, a better place within the church's ecclesiology and how um, hierarchy functions in the church and also canonically made more sense and was sort of a more portable model and that eventually turned into Vosestes. And, you know, there there was, I think, um, there were in some places attempts to sort of do what you say, have a sort of reductive quasi-political presentation of it that was, you know, these guys versus these guys, this camp versus that camp. But, uh, you know, that, that would, in my point of view... Um, be as you exactly say bad reporting because you know it was as I remember it Archbishop Shapu of Philadelphia and Cardinal Subich of Chicago were both on the same side of that argument and if you- uh, yeah they were in agreement and uh, and and I asked Archbishop Shapu about it after and he was very strong he said no this is absolutely completely what I agree with. I think Cardinal Subich is right about that which by the way he was he also agreed with them in the sort of contentious 2019 debate about the preeminent priority pair paragraph and that whole to do exactly um, but this is yeah. my point is it's if you actually present the the arguments as they're being made amongst um amongst the bishops when they're speaking to each other frankly and freely and as brother bishops you know it can be a little charged sometimes but that doesn't mean that it lends itself to a sort of reductive pugilistic narrative of this camp versus that camp but, but um, we do and, have to talk about the effect of that because no bishop, you know, part of the reason, part of the reason I think why bishops might, might be hesitant to speak, I think it has a lot of, I think it has to do with a lot of things. Um, but part of it, I think, and bishops have said this to me in one way or another, is that nobody wants to get, pardon the expression, but nobody sort of wants to get Taylor Marshall. So that is to say, nobody wants to see a short clip of themselves, a soundbite of themselves cut and packaged for the internet under the caption, this bishop is not Catholic or this bishop is a heretic or whatever. And understandably. Um, you know, there's a responsibility that is often not met among those who uh, who either report on the news or more frequently or on the church or more frequently who comment on the church uh, of doing that in a way that is, you know, that is beyond that is not responsible. And um, and bishops are there are a lot of bishops who don't want to have that happen to them. And I yeah, think well, these you know, are ecclesiologically and theologically illiterate schoolyard bullies, and you only empower them by, you know, appeasing them. Stand up to them. Yeah, I think that's just true. Just say no. I this is garbage, and I'm not going to take it. And you know, this is why you don't yeah. you don't get anywhere by saying I don't I don't you know I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to cross the mean kid. It, it's like, how does that help? Yeah, I know. I'm just I'm just diagnosing the problem. Yeah, I know, and I'm just saying the solution is again more bishop, please. I, I would like more bishop. I would like you know. I am I am with you, my friends. All right. Well, Ed, that was a good discussion. I think so. I had fun. I, I, I'm I glad that you're making good time still. I hope that you will continue to do so. I, I look forward to having you back in the in the sort of metaphorical office. Um, well, I'll be back be in the metaphorical office soon. I mean, do you want to talk about catechists real quick? Uh, I mean, we can if you want. I, I will be honest. It was, I mean, so this is, of course, the issuing of the motu proprio, which we talked about on the podcast last week, uh, which came out on Tuesday. And... Um, I don't want to say institutionalize the role of catechist because, of course, the role of catechist was already institutionalized. It was in the Code of Canon Law. It was fairly clearly defined. Um, there was a directory for catechists issued by the Congregation for um, the Evangelization of People's Propaganda Fide in 1993, I think. Um, so this is already a fairly well-defined and well-explained role, which, uh, you know, as we mentioned last week, has uh, an active and important part in the life of the church and in mission territories and places where the church isn't very well established. Um, but my needle hasn't really moved from last week on what I said were my concerns, which is this is 
it looks likely to universalize the role of catechist, which in the code and in the directory of catechists, uh, directory for catechists, um, you know, defined it within the scope of missionary territories and working under the supervision of and in conjunction with um, a missionary, and and that it was going to universalize it and basically say, well, you can do this everywhere in the world and now it can, and you know, the sort of the the role of catechist and how it functions has actually become less well defined as a result of this motu proprio, because it basically kicks it over to Episcopal conferences to come yeah, up with the their own... Yeah, the liturgical commission thing with a ton of regional variability. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and it'll be, yeah. yeah. You know what one of the first questions that was asked in the press conference about this was, J.D.? No. Can lady catechists give homilies now? Yeah, which is a very weird thing. I mean, the question should be, should can lay catechists give homilies now, right? Because it's... the. A homily is a, a homily is a kind of preaching that is properly done, properly and necessarily done. It's tautological that a homily is given by a cleric, so it's totally a total misunderstanding of the whole uh, of the whole thing and a total abuse of the whole thing. Yes, but that's be- the only reason that the question was asked and the way the question was asked that way is because there are an entire um, a- a- entire section of uh, the church who will try and receive this role and try and implement this role as a sort of quasi lady priesthood or diaconate. Well, and, and the church has to say no. That's not at all what it is. And um, yeah, and as we all know, the Germans are so really very good at hearing the word no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm less I'm less concerned about this because I think that that was as true on Monday with any number of things in the church as it is on Tuesday. Yes, there will be a role of liturgical commissioning for this, but a bishop. But I have noticed that bishops have a penchant to make up liturgical rites of commissioning with some degree of regularity. Anyway, so I don't know. I mean, I I. I hear you. I understand your concern that it could be sort of a view that this sort of intention, this universalization of the notion of catechists as a sort of um, stable role in the church as opposed to a person who catechizes, but a, of commissioning people for the stable role of catechist could be misinterpreted or abused in certain ways, uh, you know, related to the notion of priests or women or, or even married men or priests or something like that. I, 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 I hear you. I don't know. I just, it seems to me like, a bishop who like, wanted to do that could have done that as much any other day. Yeah, they probably will, but I just don't like that. I don't like giving them something that they will misappropriate and cloak themselves in to justify it. Um, and, and I mean, to be clear, I, I said last week, I like catechists. I like the role of catechist. I like the work they do. I like the, the, the broad and expansive part that they play in the life of communities, basically leading what we would in any other part of the world term parishes. Um, in the absence of available clergy, yeah, I, I like I all of that. It's absolutely necessary. Yeah, I, I like all of it. I think they do great and holy and noble work. I 100% agree with the Pope that the work that they do is a vocation. It's not a job. I think all of that. And, you know, I just, I don't want to see, I don't want to see the the noble and valuable vocation and concept, which was the, the point of this motu proprio, tarnished by association with the people who are going to try and hijack it. Oh, eh, I hear you. It, what it is, JD, is I just res- I have too much respect for the role of catechist. <laughs> I have too much respect for the role of catechist Aren't to ask stupid and asinine questions Aren't like, "Can lady catechists give homilies now?" Because that's really all I know. I hear you. I hear you, and I'm with you. Well, I'm not with you, but I hear you. I respect you. Uh, one other thing that I think is super interesting, and I'm sure you do too, the Vatican City State is building a bigger courtroom. They are. They are. They've taken over a hall in the Vatican Museum, and they're making a courtroom that can hold uh, significantly more attendees for future sessions where that might prove necessary. Um, gosh, 
I, I wonder what's coming next. Let me tell you who this is not for. This is not for a trial of Gianluigi Torzi, who was arrested again this week. You know, he's he's making a habit of it. I was saying to a friend of mine, um, you know, if Torzi keeps getting arrested like this, sooner or later people are going to come to the conclusion that he might, you know, be a little shady or something. Right, um, exactly. That's right. It's it really it starts to look. I mean, you know, once by accident, you know, you get arrested in Vatican City and skip bail. It's one thing, you know. It's another thing entirely to get arrested again in London on an extradition warrant from Italy. And anyway, so this expanded courtroom that they are building, and uh, uh, Giuseppe Pignatone, the the chief sort of judge magistrate of the tribunal of Vatican City State, said, you know, he hopes it'll be ready by sort of the end of June, uh, and it's being prepared. Uh, against the possibility that there will be future legal proceedings in the near future that uh, will draw more attendees. Uh, this isn't going to be for Tortsy, because Tortsy, he's currently in uh, a London jail. He's currently detained at Her Majesty's pleasure while they haggle out whether or not he should be granted bail, while they then haggle out whether or not he can be put in the post and sent home to Rome to face trial there on charges of money laundering, tax evasion, fraud, you know, the usual things. Um, but it's clear now, if and when he's extradited, He's going to Rome. He's not going to the Vatican, and he's going to stand trial in an Italian court. He's going to have an Italian trial. He may subsequently have a Vatican City State trial, but he's first going to have an Italian trial for Italian crimes. Then he yeah. may well so, have a Vatican City State trial, but at that point he'll already be, if he's found guilty, he'll already be found guilty. Um, but before that, you know, it's interesting. So the changes that Pope Francis has made uh, in recent weeks are to allow for uh, cardinals and bishops to be tried by the court of the Vatican City State and now a bigger courtroom. So um, it seems ever more likely and ever more possible that a cardinal uh, could be tried in the court of the Vatican City State. And the front runner for that would be if a cardinal were to be tried in the court of the Vatican City State in a brand new big courtroom. The front runner for that, of course, would be our old friend, Cardinal Angelo Bacciu, who has long been under investigation and connected to the various tentacles, all of the various tentacles, actually, of the sprawling Vatican financial scandal. He, he does... Um... He does have his his name does crop up a lot. Uh, I, I mean, often I'm writing it, but still, his name does crop a lot. Crop up a lot. Um, so if if um, if the if it should so transpire that uh, there is going to be a a trial that will attract uh, public interest and and, and uh, elevated attendance uh, in the Vatican Tribunal, uh, I think probably you're right. Cardinal Betchu is is probably the odds-on favorite for for being the star attraction at that. But we will see. Um, but you know, things are things are happening fast these days. As the world turns. And with that, dear listeners, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Joint. I'm your host on the road, Pillar co-founder JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and other Pillar co-founder. Other was somewhat unnecessary there, but other Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. We will talk to you next week. God bless. Safe flight, buddy. Good night, buddy. What did you say? I said safe flight. Oh, thanks.